last week, anybody tell me what our uh, lesson was about? That he was as much man as he was God, as much That's God as he was man. Yes. He is fully God and fully man. This week we're continuing on with our next point, maybe two this morning, depending on how quickly we get through things. Uh, this morning we are starting a couple of minutes late, but that's okay. Uh, this morning, as I collect my thoughts here, our thought is Christ is without sin. And that's what we're studying this morning. Christ is without sin. When we say that Jesus is without sin, we mean that he is separate from all defilement and free from sin and a sin nature. Uh, for example, how many of us know that it's bad for us to eat unhealthy food, right? We shouldn't do that, right? How many of us have eaten unhealthy in the last 24 hours? Every hand went up twice just for you guys on Facebook, right? So we do things we know we shouldn't do. Right? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand, but how many married people have looked at have looked at somebody who wasn't their spouse and thought how attractive they were? Right? Not asking for a show of hands or anything here. I'm not asking you to air out your dirty laundry just into yourself. We know that we, even though we haven't and would never take action to such things, your mind goes places it shouldn't go, right? That is because we all as human beings have what's called a sin nature. That means that it is natural for us and extremely tempting for us to do things we know we shouldn't do. It is a struggle for us to oftentimes do the right thing. Right. So when we say that Jesus Christ was free from sin, we're saying that he was free from committing sins, and he was free from having a sin nature. He was not a sinner by nature. That's not to say, though, that he didn't face the same kind of temptations that we did, right? Because the Bible tells us that he was tempted like we are, right? So when, uh, <clears throat> for example, in Matthew 4, we're going to read a little bit, and the devil tempts him with these different things, he was indeed tempted to take the things or do the things that the devil offered him yet without sin. So to say that Jesus Christ felt the same temptations that we do without committing any sin whatsoever is truly an amazing thing. <clears throat> this is, of course, him separate from all sin. And to understand what we refer to when we refer to the sinlessness and the holiness of Jesus, we need to understand that we're also talking about the holiness of the God of the Old Testament, because Jesus is God. And we talked a few weeks ago about the triunity and how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all three and one. Jesus said in the New Testament, we talked about before, uh, before Moses was, I am, referring to himself as the great I am of the book of Exodus. So Jesus is God, and as such is the Holy One mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament. I want to take a look at such examples this morning. In 2 Kings 19, it 
And in verse uh, 22, it says, Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? So this story is uh, Jehovah's answer to the king uh, through the man Isaiah. And we studied this a while back, but it's been a while. But basically, God is answering the king here in his reply, Hezekiah's prayer. And so he's uh, speaking to Hezekiah here, and he's saying, Who have you uh, defied? Who have you lifted your eyes up against? Who is the one that you stood against? It is against the Holy One. Now, he's saying the Holy One here to remind him since he is God, since he is the Holy One, he can't be wrong, right? And that makes pretty good sense to us, right? God can't be wrong if he's perfect, if he's sinless, if he's holy. So if you find yourself against God, guess what? You're the villain, not God. And that makes sense to, to us in our heads, but sometimes our hearts get a little confused. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves, no matter how we feel about something, God is right, and if we're disagreeing with God, then we're the ones in the wrong. The Holy One. Uh, let's look at Job 6 in the books of poetry. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Job. Chapter 6. And in verse 10... This is Job answering one of his friends, and he says, Then should I yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. So his friends have come along and accused him of disobeying God, defying God, committing sin in some way. And basically his friends are saying God would not allow such horrible things to happen to somebody if they were doing the right things. So in their minds, they have to believe that Job did something to deserve this. They can't justify that a just and holy God would allow such horrible things to happen to the life of a good man. Right, and that is sort of the theme of the book of Job is answering that question everybody has. Why is it bad things happen to good people? Job is indeed telling them, this is the question that we have. I did nothing to deserve this. Uh, that's what he's saying here. He said uh, there in the bottom of verse 10, I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. He says, I've not done anything. I've not hid his words. I've not hid them from myself or in my life. I have done everything. The words of the Holy One, the perfect one, the one who cannot be wrong. I did not set myself against him. I was on his side when all these terrible things happened. So he's again referred to as the Holy One, even in the midst of all of Job's despair. Let's take a look at Psalm 71 now. Yes, it's just the next book over. Psalm 71. And in verse 22, it says, I will also praise thee with the psaltery. It's an instrument. Even thy truth, O my God, 
Unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou holy one of Israel. Now the Psalms are songs that Israel would sing to the Lord in their worship. And this was one such example. In Psalm 71, 22, he says, I will sing with the harp, O thou holy one of Israel. Again, being referred to as the capital H, capital O, holy one. And then finally, Isaiah 43. Isaiah is one of the books of the major prophets. If you've reached Jeremiah, you've gone too far. Isaiah 43, verse 3, says, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. So now God himself referring to himself as the Holy One of Israel. We've seen others confess it, and now we see God himself confessing that he is, in fact, the Holy One. And so that phrase, Holy One, is mentioned about God specifically, as we've seen all throughout the Old Testament. We'll now see that same phrase used for the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Let's look at Mark 1 in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1 and in verse 24. Saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. This is the story of uh, the demons at Capernaum. And Jesus comes to uh, a man with a demon, and uh, Jesus says, Who art thou? And they say, uh, We are Legion. Our name is Legion, for we are many. That part of the story might... Ring a few bells, right? So uh, they say, don't destroy us. Instead, cast us into uh, the herd of swine. And he agrees and casts them into the herd of swine, and they go running off the cliff, killing the pigs. Right? Remember that story. This is that story. When Jesus approaches them, they say, let us alone. What have we to do with thee? But then they say, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One. Right? The Holy One of God. So here even the demons themselves referring to Jesus as the Holy One. Uh, there is a phrase in the New Testament, I believe it's Paul who wrote, uh, thou, uh, thou believest, uh, this is good. He says, the angels also believe and tremble, or the, the, the devils. The devils also believe and tremble, right? So basically saying, if all we do is just say we believe, our faith goes no farther than that of the enemy. Right? The enemy believes. Here in verse 24, they refer to Jesus as the Holy One. Uh, let's take a look now at Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Does anybody know what Acts chapter 2 is? The day of Pentecost, yeah. And yes, you're also right. The Peter's speech. 
On the day of Pentecost, a lot of things happened uh, for the New Testament age. We're going to talk about those things at a later date. But one of the things that happens is that Peter begins to uh, sort of preach a sermon here. And uh, as everybody's listening, they're hearing in their own language and everything. And, and someone says, oh, they must be drunk. And then Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. Not this many people have an alcohol problem, right? And then he go he continues on with this spiel. And part of his uh, sermon, in verse 22, we're going to read a couple of verses of. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved among God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs. That was the purpose of all those miracles and all those wonders that Jesus performed. Was he was proving to Israel, to God's chosen people Israel, that he was in fact their Messiah. Right. By miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Verse 25 says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption." A verse Peter is quoting from the Old Testament that he is now telling us refers to Jesus. Right, so we've seen in the book of Mark, in the book of Acts, and also, uh, lastly, 1 John 2. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Jude, and then the book of Revelation. So it's very close to the end of the book of uh, very close to the end of the Bible. First John chapter three, and in verse five, it says, "And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin." Right. So the New Testament refers to Jesus as the Holy One just like he does in the Old Testament. So his sinlessness is still that of divine nature. He doesn't have a sin nature. He has a divine nature. He is sinless, uh, not without temptation, but without sin. There's a big difference. Just because you feel tempted doesn't mean you've committed a sin, right? You commit the sin when you allow yourself to do that thing, right? When you allow yourself to say that thing. Uh, sins can even be of the mind, but uh, it's not those thoughts, and there are different kinds of thoughts. There are thoughts that pop into your head, you know, in and out real quick that you have no control over. But when you allow yourself to stop and dwell on something for a while, that is a decision you made, and that is sin. And so sin is always a decision. If you can't control the situation, it wasn't a sin. The Bible says, he who knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's always a decision on our part. 
right? And it was a decision on the Lord's part. He felt these temptations and yet did not sin. Therefore, the holiness of Christ is the same as the holiness of God that we read about in the Old Testament, in that it was perfect. It was without corruption. It was flawless. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was indeed without sin, and I'm going to quote several verses for you now. Leviticus 11:44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God here saying about himself, I am holy. Matthew chapter 4, let's take a look at. Matthew chapter 4 uh, may seem like it's no big deal on the surface. But let me tell you, this was a gargantuan moment for humanity. This was huge. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, we read the story of the temptation of Jesus. Now, each generation up until Jesus had a sort of spiritual champion, if you will. You start uh, in the very beginning of creation, it was Adam and Eve. And Adam lost to the serpent in the garden, didn't he? And then you have Cain and Abel. And Cain slew Abel and lost to that same serpent in his own way. And you go throughout time, and, and it talks about the different generations of people. And we come up to Noah. And we see how all the, the earth was corrupt before Noah, except for Noah, who was sort of the spiritual champion of his own generation. But then we find out that after uh, he came off the ark, he allowed himself to get drunk and naked in front of his family. And it was a whole embarrassing moment. And so we see the devil defeating Noah even in his generation. And then we continue on through the annals of time, and one generation after another, we come to Abraham. And Abraham uh, brought his family to Egypt because there was a famine in the land, and asked his wife to lie for him so that he wouldn't uh, be in any danger. And the Bible tells us that God was displeased with Abraham because of that, and the devil fail, he failed before his battle with the devil. And you continue on, and you come to many different uh, such people. The, the same exact sin was uh, committed by Isaac, his son. And then you come to Jacob, who was considered a trickster and a supplanter. He was, he was a very famously a liar and a thief. And you come past him to Joseph, who was very uh, uh, proud and vain in his early uh, years before his brothers, uh, being insulted that they would not bow before him after his dream. And uh, we see many such uh, things as you continue on. You can look at David and see his sin with Bathsheba. And you can see Saul and his anger toward David. You can see Solomon and how his many wives turned his heart from God. And each generation and their sort of spiritual champion has failed to defeat the devil. He's beaten each and every one of our champions. And here comes Matthew chapter 4. And here the devil is bringing his A-game. The devil is going to tempt Jesus with as much ferocity and as much power as he has anybody else ever. It says in verse 1, when Jesus was led up of the Spirit to, uh, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And you might think, well, duh. Of course he was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. 
But it's important the Bible puts that in there, because if it didn't, you might think Jesus was incapable of feeling something as human as hunger. Right? You might wonder, can Jesus get hungry? But now we know, yes, he feels the same sort of pains that we feel in life. He got hungry. He got splinters in his finger. You know, he got cuts. He, he hurt. He felt the same pains that we do every day in our life. He relates to us. He was afterwards unhungered. And when the tempter came to him, that is the devil, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. This is one of the most effective temptations of the devil, is hunger. Right? You say, hunger? How does the devil use hunger to make a sin? Well, think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? This was the first ever trick that the devil ever used on mankind, and it worked splendidly. It got Adam really good. Eve was tricked, remember, but Adam wasn't tricked. He knew what that fruit was. He knew what he was doing. He knew he wasn't supposed to. With no deception in him at all, he took a bite of that piece of fruit. Right? So food, very effective against humans. And he's using it now. Imagine having not eaten for a few days. And you walk in somewhere, uh, uh, maybe you're doing a fast. I don't know if anybody here has ever done a, a fast before, but a fast isn't just a dietary thing. It's a spiritual thing. Uh, when you've got something very heavy on your heart, something really troubling you, something you feel like you really need to spend some time in powerful prayer about, you will fast before the Lord. It's just a part of our our uh, faith is fasting. So imagine you decide you're going to fast for a week and a few days pass and you haven't eaten anything in three days and you come into somebody's house and they're baking fresh homemade bread, right? Maybe they're making uh, cinnamon rolls. You can smell the cinnamon rolls cooking. You smell that cinnamon and that bread in the air. You'd be very tempted to break your fast, wouldn't you? Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. And Satan is tempting him like he's in a bakery. If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread, because it's exactly what Jesus could have done. He could have taken those stones and turned them into fresh, freshly baked bread like they're fresh out of the, the bakery down the street. You know that smell you get when you walk into a donut store. That's what... The Lord was being tempted with here. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus had done this and he had turned those stones into bread, is there any sin there? I can't think of anything. He could have very easily done that, but he chose not to. You know why? If you don't, he tells us. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What he's saying here is, Now is not the time for bread. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, There is a time and a season for everything under the sun. Right? That was a time for fasting. It was a time for spirituality. It was a time for Jesus to fight a spiritual fight, for Jesus to battle against the devil and be with his heavenly father. Now was not the appropriate time for bread. And he stuck to his guns. 
He didn't allow the devil to distract him with thoughts of food or anything else. There's nothing wrong with food. But when food distracts you from the spiritual things you ought to be doing, then it is a problem. Let me ask you a question. If you're at work and you've got a big project you're working on and you need your full attention on that project, and then all of a sudden you get distracted thinking about lunch, and you stop working on that project to go get lunch early, and the project doesn't get done on time, does your lunch become a problem? Yes, it does. If it's true for work, it's no less true for God. Don't forget the most important thing you do in your life is what you do for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when something as innocent as food or lunch because of a distraction to our spiritual uh, sustenance because your soul needs food too, then it becomes a problem. The devil continues on. Uh, the devil taketh him up to an exceedingly high pinnacle of the temple in verse 5, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands uh, shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. So here we have a, a double layered temptation here because the temptation here is number one, you might say, why would the devil do this? Any human is not going to want to throw themselves off the top of a temple, right? But here he's questioning Jesus, um, uh, messiahship, whether or not Jesus is in fact the Christ. He's saying, if you're really this Jesus that's supposed to come along, jump. And if you jump, the angels will catch you if you say you are who you are. They protect you 24-7, night and day. You've got legions of angels watching over you if you are, in fact, Christ. So the temptation here becomes one of pride. right? And it's something we all deal with. We are all very proud of our accomplishments. You think of whatever it is that you've done, that you're proud of yourself for doing. For some people, it's their level of education. Right? Maybe graduating high school or getting a GED or uh, getting a, a degree or even just a year of, of Bible or not Bible, a year of college. You know, uh, something that you've accomplished, those classes that you passed, the, the papers you turned in, the work that you did. Maybe you got a special award at work for something amazing you did. Maybe you earned a trophy for uh, some competition you entered. You're very proud of these things. As somebody comes along, as you're telling, the story of how you accomplished this thing, and somebody comes along and they say, that's not true, you didn't do that. That's something you're quite proud of. You didn't do that. What are you going to be tempted to do? You're going to be tempted to prove them wrong. I say, oh yeah? Well, let me go get it. I'll show it to you. Bring out the trophy, bring out the plaque, bring out the diploma, the degree. Yeah, see, here it is. And that's the temptation. And Jesus is being tempted with pride himself. And he's saying here, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really Christ, then jump. And then I'll believe you. You'll have convinced me. Jesus does not. He says, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The word tempt here can also be taken as our more modern uh, version of it, test. You shouldn't test God. In other words, 
Jesus should not have jumped off of there, and he didn't jump off of there because he's not supposed to test the Heavenly Father and say, I'll jump and, and uh, I'll test the Heavenly Father to see if he'll actually save me. We shouldn't do these things, right? We shouldn't, um, uh, as a church, right, we would never jump into a building we can't afford, right, and just wait and see and test God to see if he's going to uh, just take care of us like he promised he would, right, because we're not supposed to tempt or test the Lord God, right, that is, we're not supposed to put ourselves in situations just to see if God will catch us or not, that is sin. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, here is the ultimate test against humanity. Every single one of us will fail. You will not beat this last test. You may beat the hunger test, right? Highly doubtful, very difficult, but we may do it. You may beat the pride test, equally difficult. For some people, even more so. But it tests that other that other half. Because the one half, if they're proud enough to get past the hunger and say, I don't need that food, I'm good enough without it. They're going to get caught on that other half, aren't they? That prideful half. And they say, you say you're so good. I don't really believe that you're that good. Why should I believe it? They're going to be prideful and try to prove it. Right? So one or the other, but everybody fails the third one. You know what the devil did? He took Jesus and he took him on top of a mountain and he showed him all the most powerful kingdoms, all the greatest armies of the world, all the wealth and the gold and the jewels and the riches of the entire world. You know what he would do to you? He would search your mind and he would discover what it is you want more than anything else. He would say, you want your kids to never be sick again. I can make that happen. All of a sudden, your kids have uh, super uh, blood, kills off everything. In an instant, your kids will never be sick ever again. Like that. Say anything you want. You want your house paid off? Boom. There it is. You want all your bills paid for the rest of your life? There you go. You want a billion dollars? There you go. You want to be the most powerful person on the planet? There you go. You want this person to fall in love with you? There you go. Anything you want, search your mind. He'll find it out and offer it to you. And we would like to think we would resist such things and we would say no, but odds are we probably wouldn't. How tempting it would be for us to take exactly what it is that we want. You want your loved ones back? Back from the dead. The things that the devil promises. Showed him all the greatest things the earth has to offer. And he said, all these will be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Now, sitting here in Sunday school class, we know the answer. We'd like to think we'd say no. But how many times have you said to yourself, you know, just this one time I could do the wrong thing and then ask forgiveness for it later. How many times have we told ourselves that? I know it's wrong, but it's what I'm going to do. And maybe I can ask God to forgive me for it later. 
We've all thought it before. And how tempting would it be to do the wrong thing this one time, get all the desires of your heart, and then after you've gotten everything you've ever wanted, then ask God to forgive you for it. You will fail this test. But it's a good thing you're not the one taking it. Because the one that took it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the things that get us, all the things that, that take us, all the things that we fail at, he succeeded. He's offered these things. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan. Now remember, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the King of Kings. We're talking about the second part of the Holy Trinity. We're talking about one that ruled the infinite wonders of heaven. One who was meant to be the infinite ruler of earth. Who will one day rule this earth with a rod of iron, the Bible says. It's supposed to belong to him. It used to belong to him. And now man has taken it from him. And the devil's tempting him with it. And he says... All these kingdoms, all this wealth, all this power, it's supposed to be yours. They think you're going to start your millennial reign. They think you're here to establish the kingdom. Even your own disciples think that. Why not go ahead and do it? I can give you what God failed. That's what the devil's saying to Jesus here. And Jesus' response to his heart's greatest desire was, Get thee hence, Satan. Get behind me. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The Bible says that the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Jesus beat the devil. We have no need for a spiritual champion to take on the devil anymore because Jesus beat the devil. Adam couldn't do it. Cain couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. Nobody could do it until Jesus did it. He is without Sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was without spot. The Passover lamb, when it was going to be offered, they brought it before the high priest. The high priest had to take that lamb, and he had to examine it very carefully. Lift the legs, check behind it, check under it, check on top, check its head, check every spot, every bit of that lamb to make sure there was no spots 
There were no blemishes. It was perfect. And when it had been thoroughly examined and passed the examination, the high priest would speak out one word in the Hebrew. It was the word titelistai. It means it's pure, it's holy, it's accepted as the Passover lamb. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he said in his final words, it is finished. Folks, do you know what it is finished translates to in the Hebrew? Titelistai. He was the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He was without spot. He was without blemish. But the more spiritually astute among us might be asking this question. Why does it matter to us that Jesus was perfect? The big so what, if you will. Well, firstly, if Jesus was anything less than perfect, anything less than sinless, he would have been unqualified to be the savior of the world. He couldn't have done it. Secondly, it matters to us because we're called to be as perfect as our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. His steps were perfect. His steps were flawless. And we are called to follow in those sinless, perfect steps. Mark 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And it's true that perfection in the Christian life is something we can never fully accomplish. So then why would God set the standard so impossibly high? For two reasons. First, to teach us that our imperfections are not an excuse to surrender to the flesh. I am tired of hearing good Christian people who have gone to church for many years say for themselves when they know they're doing something wrong, nobody's perfect. I'm tired of it. We know better than this. We can do better than that. You're not perfect, but that's not, that does not make what you're doing okay. And it's time to have some spiritual maturity. It's time to choose to do the right thing. Just because nobody's perfect does not make it okay for you to run around doing whatever it is that you want to do. Our imperfection is not an excuse to surrender to our flesh. Secondly, to give us something to strive for all the days of our life. If you were able to reach perfection, where do you go from there in your Christianity? Are you finished? Are you done? You get to put the Bible away now because you finished it all? He set the standard so impossibly high so that you know you're not done. You didn't finish Christianity. You've always got something you can work on. None of us are perfect. Christ is sinless, and it matters to us. And I want to look at this morning also 
and uh, my second point this morning, and I believe the final point in the person of Christ. And next week we'll start to survey the life of Christ. What we see secondly this morning is that Christ is full of love. The love of Christ is so deep and so powerful that it is, in fact, beyond human comprehension. The Bible says in Ephesians 3 and verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might uh, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, that you might know the dimensions of God's love. We live in a three-dimensional world. That means that we have three different dimensions in which we measure a certain thing, right? Two dimensions, like a piece of paper, something you draw on. We live in a three-dimensional world, and, and God, and the Apostle Paul tells us that God would have us to know the love of Christ in all three dimensions. In every different possible conceivable aspect of reality, God wants us to know the love of Christ. Notice what he said there in verse 18, uh, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. That word breadth is width, by the way. All the different dimensions of God's love, he wants you to know it in the most intimate way possible. That love of Christ, it also says in verse 19, which passeth knowledge. That to know the love of Christ, you have to have more than a head knowledge. The love of Christ dwells in the heart. The heart is beyond the head. Right? When you feel something, when you experience something, it's very different than reading it in a book, isn't it? How many of you at the place you work have ever seen, have been at the place you work for a few years? How many of you? Now, how many of you in the place that you work, that you've been at for a few years, have seen somebody green come in in their first year? You watched their very first day. Most of us. Now, those brand new people are usually, correct me if I'm wrong, very textbook, right? Yeah, very by the book, this is what the manual says, so this is what I'm going to do, right? Why is that? Nothing else will go off. Exactly. That's all they have is that manual. You don't go off the manual because you have experiences. You haven't just read about it. You haven't just been told about it. You've experienced it. You felt it, right? Josh, in your chemistry, at very first, I'm sure you were very careful with exact measurements, but I'm sure after a while, you can pour that and know that you've hit the exact measurement without being quite as precise. Yeah. That's experience that they don't have, right? You felt how heavy that cup is supposed to be, right? You can see where in the cup it lines up without really, you know, getting down there and checking. You hear how how much pouring takes place in the cup, the the sound, you know that sound a cup makes as it gets the pitch gets lighter as it fills up. You know, it starts very low and it gets a little higher. 
pay attention to it the next time you fill something up, you'll hear what I'm talking about. The love of Christ, it goes beyond knowledge. It's more than just what we read about in the Bible. It's more than just textbook. It's something we experience. It's something we feel, and you can't know it in all the different dimensions you could until you've experienced it. Often when we love someone, we say we'll love them no matter what. Right? You ever seen a newlywed couple before? Usually, I say you guys as a newlywed couple, uh, very strong love between you two, but you guys had your feet on the ground better than most. Right? There's a lot of newlywed couples, uh, sort of pie in the sky, nothing bad will ever happen to us, you know, our love will get us through anything, we'll never have a problem kind of ideology. You guys had your feet on the ground a little better than that. But most newlywed couples I know, very much outside of reality. Right? And what do you hear a lot of times? Nothing will ever happen to us. We'll love each other no matter what. And for a Christian married couple, this ought to be very true. But what it doesn't mean is that there won't be troubles for your relationship down the road. It won't mean that when you get back home from that honeymoon, there won't be an argument or two. No, you can't spend $500 on a 3D printer. It's my money. I'll spend it however I want to. Well, it's not your money. That's not what you told me when we got married. I thought it was our money, and I should have a say in how it's spent. And there the argument goes from there. And she's at Walmart. She gives you that call. Hey, I just spent $400. I don't really know how. I've got a bag full of stuff. Uh, trunk is pretty full, so I guess it's in there. You say, how can you spend $400 at Walmart? And she says, how can you spend $500 on a 3D printer? And there the argument goes. Right? <laughs> and if you're not careful, you can get pretty intense in that. And you say stuff like, well, you get that from your mama. And she said, don't you dare say nothing about my mama. <laughs> and it goes from there. And it gets more intense. And it gets worse. And feelings get hurt. But people think, they say, we'll love each other no matter what, but we all have a point at which our love, no matter how strong, has taken so much betrayal and so much abuse that it simply dies out. And that's not normally because of $400 Walmart trips. That's something a little more painful. That's something a little heavier. The reason I say this is not to down marriages. You should take very serious care of your relationship because it is fragile and it needs taken care of. But I say this because I'm comparing it to the opposite, which is the love of Christ, right? It, you know you love your partner, but there is something your partner could do that you would leave. You've got something in your head, and you say, if they ever did that to me, I would leave. You assume they never would, so you don't have to worry about it. But you've got that line in your head, right? The love of Christ, however is capable of taking all the abuse and betrayal that we commit within our sins all the time without ever dying out. That is real love. That is true love. That is the way love should be. It should not die out. There should be no line. 
love, true love, real love is eternal and it endures. It does not get caught off guard and fizzle out. And you cannot know real love until you know the love of Christ. Once you've experienced the kind of love that can take all the abuse you ever want to dish out and never die out, then you know real love. Now, let me make myself very clear here. If there is a, 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 if you're being abused in a relationship, I am not saying you should stay in that situation. Somebody watching this today is being abused, whether it be physically or in any other way. You should get help. You should go somewhere safe. You should be away from that person. Okay, I'm not saying sit there and get abused. You should not get abused. But love endures. And if your spouse loves you with true love, they're not going to abuse you that way. I just want to make myself very clear on that point. But we cannot know true love until we know Christ. Romans 8.35 was my grandfather's favorite verse. I remember coming home from church one day. We are both walking through the door at the same time. And he stopped me right there at the doorway. And it was a verse that had come up in passing during the sermon, but he took the time to stop and, and really talk to me about it. He told me this was his favorite verse because it sort of undoes a lot of the angry, hateful preaching that goes on in the world today. In Romans 8.35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, famine is without food, or nakedness represents poverty, or peril, troubles and problems all the time, or sword, violent threat, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In Paul's day, people were being lined up to be butchered in the name of Christ all the time. Don't think it's any different today just because you live in America. We live in a land of freedom where you don't have to worry about being killed because you claim to believe in Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing, but that's not just a thing of the past. That happens in our world today. There are people in countries who, if they're found with a Bible, will be arrested or worse. There are people today, you hear missionary stories of people alive in our time today who have had guns held to their head and guns held to their families' heads and were told to recant their faith or they were going to have to watch their families be killed. This is happening in our world today. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The things we think we endure for Jesus here in our world today, they don't hold a candle to the things that people in the what they call the 1040 window are enduring. The places where it's illegal to have a Bible, the police will break into your home and search it for a Bible if they think it's in there. And if they find it, you're arrested. You go to jail. 
They'll hide pages of the Bible throughout their house in places they hope the police won't find it. We may have troubles in America today, but they don't hold a candle to the troubles that other people are facing. But here we see in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul saying that even if we face such distresses, such perils, such threats, it cannot touch the love of Christ. We cannot be separated from his love. Nothing that happens can separate us from his love. I want to talk about very quickly this morning a few of the objects of Christ's love. First of which is the Heavenly Father. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, But that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Here Jesus saying that he loves the Heavenly Father, and because he loves the Heavenly Father, he does the commandments the Father gave him. His motivation for obeying the commandments is a thing of love and not a thing of fear. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We don't, I'm not going to ask you to obey the commandments of God for me. I'm not going to tell you to obey the commandments of God because if you don't, God's going to punish you. That is not proper motivation. That is not Christ's intended motivation. You know what Jesus said we should obey the commandments? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in mine ear, the sweetest name on earth. That song ring a bell to anybody? It's called, Oh, How I Love Jesus. 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 Because he first loved me. Do we love Jesus? If we do, we'll obey him. He loves the Heavenly Father, and he obeys the Heavenly Father. He loves the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. That goes along with what we were saying before, doesn't it? You should treat your wife. Well, it says, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, you should love your wife the way that Jesus loves the church. And any man who loves his wife the way that he, they ought to be loved is going to treat that person with respect, is going to treat that person with love and admiration and care. Husbands, love your wives. He loves the church. He loves the believer. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You want an example of Jesus loving you? Just look up at the cross. There's your proof. And an empty cross at that. There are what they call the crucifixes. It's a picture of Jesus on the cross. Well, it's a picture of a, of a white man with really long hair on the cross. I'm sure a lot of those got crucified too. That wasn't Jesus. Um, 
It's supposed to represent Jesus, I assume. And yet, Jesus didn't stay on the cross, did he? He went into that tomb, but he didn't stay in the tomb either, did he? You can search the world over, and they have, and you won't find the bones of Jesus, and they haven't. Because he rose from the grave, he resurrected, he defeated death for his love for each and every one of us. Not as a group, not as a whole, but as individuals. You didn't get into heaven on some spiritual Groupon. Okay? You didn't get into heaven on some spiritual group discount. Everybody else got in? I guess you're part of the group too. Come on in. No, he loved you as an individual. He hand-selected each and every one of us for our very special and unique purposes to enter into his kingdom of heaven. Children. He loves. Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said, And verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. For whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso receive one such little one in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Treat kids right. And then we see, finally this morning, he loves the lost. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says, For when we were without strength in due season, or in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the person of Christ. Fantastic person. The greatest person you'll ever know. And next week we're going to talk about his life, but I am behind my time, and that is all we've got for today. We'll be back at, looks like, 5 after. Hey guys, Pastor Strange here. Uh, just to let you know, I didn't realize that this lesson was like an hour long. And uh, yeah, it was not 5 after when we came back. So I do apologize for this super long uh, lesson. But hey, congratulations to you to getting all the way to the end. You get a cookie.